Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger. We have Jonah Goldberg and David French. And as you can probably guess, this is going to be a lot of post-midterm chat. Takeaways. Yeah, I mean, look, as we're talking, we still don't know the state of play in the House or the Senate. It, it's <laughs> entirely possible that at the end of all of this, that the, the Republicans could control both. Uh, it's, it's still possible that they could control both. And at the end of the day, Republicans would say, well, it wasn't what we wanted fully, but the bottom line result is what exactly, you know, what was our goal. So there's a lot to be sort of said right now about the Republicans underperforming, but we still don't know how badly they underperformed. But it's absolutely clear that they underperformed. And I think a good way to think through the underperformance is not just by looking at historical numbers, uh, which we went through on advisory opinions uh, earlier, but it also to look at what could have been in some other ways. And Jonah, in his in in your um, in your newsletter, you talked about, for example, how a number of races, very winnable races, just seem to be thrown in the garbage. So it wasn't just that Republican primary voters, in some instances, i.e., Herschel Walker, picked somebody who is a uniquely bad candidate or in New Hampshire, a uniquely bad candidate, or we could go around. It's also that some good candidates were kind of scared away from running. Um, Governor Ducey in Arizona seems like he probably would have <laughs> handily defeated Senator Kelly, like handily defeated him, didn't run. You know, we in New Hampshire, the best candidate didn't run. And so there's a lot of what might have beens for Republicans and a ton of the what might have beens are tied to Donald Trump and tied to his continued influence. And so we're in one of these phases right now where it looks like there's at least some people who've been somewhat critical of Trump in the past publicly, who are really publicly now much more aggressively critical some people who are aggressively critical in the past and then kind of got on the Trump train have now been critical again. Um, but we still have an awful lot of the anonymous sources are saying that they're urging Trump not to call, you know, not to not to announce. Uh, uh, anonymous Republicans are saying, and I have to conf I have to say, I will believe that the Trump fever has broken in the party when the anonymous sources aren't anonymous anymore. And until then, I'll believe it when I see it. So Jonah, one of the narratives that has really taken hold since election night is this idea that it was the results are a repudiation of MAGA movement, Donald Trump, that he's the guy who had the worst night. I just want to provide a alternative theory here, which is, and again, bear in mind, I was the person who said that, um, I was not seeing a lot of data that abortion was an important factor in this election. But assume for a second, and I think we do have some data now, that abortion was a really important factor in this election for a lot of voters. Doesn't that mean this was a repudiation of social conservatives? And that in fact, the MAGA movement 
isn't really about social conservatism um, and that the narrative has just been kind of incorrect? Um, uh, yes and no. No and yes. Yes on Wednesdays <laughs> and half of Fridays and no on uh, – look, I mean, it's it's – First of all, this is the problem that we that all of us in this crazy, stupid life that we have chosen, we want, you know, it's like every two years or every four years after every election, there's like 72 hours where there is this giant smoldering lump of molten metal, metal. and everybody from every side is trying to bend it, mold it to their false god of conventional wisdom and you only get 72 hours to do it and everyone's doing it furiously and then once it hardens we all must genuflect until the next election to this one image of what the conventional wisdom says what the election was about the election was about a lot of stuff that is such a perfect way to phrase it and it, i find that stuff so frustrating this rush to have one explanation and one overarching theme for any given day of the week Right. And particularly because, I mean, the great irony is, it's like, I, mean, I don't think it's going to happen, but I was thinking this like yesterday, all of these yet to be counted things, they could end up tipping all for Republicans. And so like this, it wasn't a red wave thing, actually was a red wave, but the conventional wisdom already sort of set in and it was going to stick. Regardless, I think there are a bunch of things going on here. First of all, I agree with you. I think David would agree with you even more than me that MAGA really isn't about social conservatism. But that's an ideological intellectual argument. Um, for the typical MAGA person, they think it's about social conservatism. But more importantly, for the anti-Trump coalition, MAGA and social conservatism go hand in hand, right? Because your typical sort of liberal voter, progressive voter, um, always thought a lot of social conservatism was really just fancy dressed up bigotry. And that Trump revealed that. And there are a lot of social conservatives that helped Trump create that impression. Um, and I, so I think, I talking to Ron Brownstein um, about this because I've been at CNN all week. And um, his point is that there was, a, there was a Trump coalition. The problem is this wasn't a Biden, pro-Biden coalition. You can't have a pro-Biden coalition when his approval ratings are in the low 40s, according to the people who all voted Democratic, Right. It's that this was a much broader sort of anti-Trump, anti-MAGA, anti-Republican coalition. And, um, and I think that one of the reasons a lot of people got blindsided, particularly on the abortion part, is that among the hardest, and you know this stuff better than I do, Sarah, but among the hardest people in the world to poll are young people under 30, right? Particularly college kids. And... It sounds like in a lot of states with big universities, they bust in a lot of college kids who all voted Democratic. Um, so I, but my, but look, I mean, I, I can I can go on for a very long time about how this is a repudiation of MAGA and the sort of chaos that Trump brings and the unease that Trump brings and all that kind of stuff. It's also just, but it's a repudiation on a sort of a more basic level. There's a whole crop of Republican candidates who think being a jerk wins you more voters than it loses, right? That in reality, being a jerk wins you a lot of intense voters within the sort of base of the Republican Party, but repels more general election voters than it attracts. 
And, you know, I used this in the I newsletter know, yesterday. But see, but see Arizona, Jonah, right? Like for this is what strikes me in every single narrative that you can come up with from the 2022 midterms. I can present you the counter argument. And that's yeah, unusual. And so Arizona is the counter argument to everything you just said about how candidates being jerks don't work out well. Carrie Lake told people that if they basically weren't right wing enough not to vote for her, to go vote for the other side. And it was like, well, let's see how that plays for you. And it's like, well, it looks like it's actually going to play out pretty well. Well, Ducey won by 15. Ducey won by 15. She's squeaking it out. Okay, so, you know, I mean, I, she, there's no question she she didn't build the coalition. <laughs> We were talking before about how there are going to be, you know, any complicated event, any complicated phenomenon is going to have counterexamples, right? I mean, I can, I've been saying for 30 years now, when it comes to the popular culture, I can, I can, if all I need are three examples to prove a point, which is the rule in journalism, like three examples makes a trend. I can give you three examples about how popular culture has never been more, more uplifting and wholesome. And I can give you, I can give you an argument about how popular culture is the worst sewer it's ever been because both things happen to be true because there's evidence for both. The, the Arizona case, it's sort of like all the social, all, all the sort of social Democrat people who think that like Sweden proves you can do this or you can do that and all that. And the thing is, as Charles Murray once said, there's a well-established finding in the social science literature that says pretty much any bad idea can work for a while in Sweden. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Arizona is a mess with full of very angry, weird people right now. And so, yeah, Carrie Lake may squeak this out. But take, I'm going to take a more basic example, mail-in voting. You know, I, I heard several reporters on cable news networks yesterday talk about how traditionally Republicans only vote on same day and, um, and Democrats prefer mail-in voting. Well, if you, if you define the beginning of this long-standing venerable tradition with 2020, then sure, that's true. Right. Yes. <laughs> but like historically. It's an entirely new trend. In fact, going back to like my days, uh, early vote and mail-in voting favored Republicans slightly because of the olds. Right, exactly. And and like there's a lot of advantage as a, again, you know, there's better idea, but like if you're a political campaign, banking votes before election day is awesome. And I, I, I will make you this bet that Fetterman lost. I mean, Fetterman won because he banked enough votes prior to that debate that it didn't matter how many people were freaked out about how badly he's still recovering from the stroke. And because of Trump's, you know, uh, you know, uh, encyclical on the sin of mail-in voting, um, you now have a bunch of Republicans who all want to leave it to election day. And like, it's that kind of stuff that has screwed up the party as much as anything else and is being repudiated. I'm so glad you mentioned that because while I think that the overall narrative that this was a repudiation of MAGA is overblown at this point, um, I the operational side of how Trump has messed up the Republican side of campaigns is unfathomable at some point. <laughs> and the early vote thing is such a perfect example. Like I said, it used to favor Republicans, not by a lot, but slightly, um, by and large. But in some states by a lot, you know, in other states not, right? I mean, Sure, like, I mean, by a lot though, we're still talking, again, marginal compared to where we are now, such sure. that, for instance, you wouldn't want to file a lawsuit to throw out um, early votes or absentee votes because you were going to throw out as many of your own as theirs. Like there just wasn't, that marginal difference was not going to be uh, substantial enough to take the risk. So A, because of the change in voting behavior that Donald Trump instigated, you now can target lawsuits toward 
an entire section of process voting that has a huge partisan advantage on either side. And second, as you said, Jonah, what you want is to get as many people as you can to vote early so that on election day, your man hours per voter is low. You know, you want like a one-to-one ratio of volunteer to voters left. That's what the Democrats have right now, but it's not what the Republicans have. With the same number of volunteers, they're having to reach, you know, 60% more voters or something. And that's just, it's going to be a lot harder. You also tweak your messaging more as you get more voters in the bank. You start aiming your messaging to voters who haven't voted yet, you know? Yep. So David, um, part of any election narrative is the expectations heading into the election. And the expectations heading into this election were building and building for Republicans in those last few weeks. Some of it was polling. Some of it was vibes yeah, <laughs> that we talked yeah. about plenty on here. And yeah. some of it was those historical trends feeling like they were coming home, whether it was the economic numbers, the inflation, gas prices. Um, so was all of that wrong why were the expectations different than, again, even if Republicans end up controlling the House and the Senate? In some ways, I'm glad we don't know that because what you actually want to know is that Republicans wildly underperformed the expectations from a week ago. Not the expectations from three weeks ago, <laughs> but That's right. the expectations from a week ago. And there were some good reasons for those expectations and some bad reasons. So let's start with the bad reason for the expectation. This whole weird vibe theory of politics that started out of nowhere for about two or three months here and right in the run up to the midterms was things feel like they're going in one direction. They just sort of feels like people are losing momentum. And I get it. I mean, you could sense a lot of that. And But part of it was how much of it is sort of people reinforcing each other on this notion that things feel a certain way. But then there was actually, there there was actually some indication that the feelings were being matched by data. If you, if you looked at the generic ballot, for example, it, it flipped from being maybe narrowly for the Democrats to narrowly for Republicans. But there was a very decisive vibe shift and a very small polling shift before the actual, uh, before actual election day. So you had this big vibe shift. You had a lot of smart uh, Republicans saying, it's going to be a red wave. It's going to be a red wave. All of the indications, we've got so much intensity. We've got so much enthusiasm. This is our time. And that really sort of built its own momentum. And then they were taking small polling shifts and saying, see, (laughs) see, It's not fully reflected in the data, but see, and it turns out that maybe those small polling shifts were all there was, uh, was something pretty small. And, uh, you know, aside from some polls ended up being right in the aggregate, they did not each individual given race. I mean, DeSantis blew out his expectations. I did not see a 19 DeSantis plus 19 polling average prior to the Florida election. But in the aggregate, it it looks like you're going to see, especially when it comes to things like generic ballot, stuff's going to be pretty okay. I agree with you, by the way. I think the polls were right, especially when you consider that there were still undecided voters in all of those polls. So A, they were within the margin of error for the most part. The averages 
uh, Trafalgar Group had a really bad night, for instance. There were bad. some polling groups. Yeah, that maybe because they uh, make stuff up. But. <laughs> uh, but two, you add in the margin of error plus the undecided voters that were in each of those polls that were still hovering at three to five percentage. And all of a sudden, I mean, in fairness, that leaves you with about an eight point wiggle room on any given poll, which so at some point the polls aren't as useful as you think they are. Um, You have to always assume that the undecideds are going to break evenly, which they rarely do. But in this case, they kind of did. Yeah. Yeah, they did. They did. And one other quick thing I would I think there's a difference between a MAGA repudiation and MAGA's fault. So in other words, I would say MAGA repudiation is when the voters say, I'm sick of MAGA. MAGA's fault is when the MAGA movement puts bad candidates forward. I like that <laughs> and, distinction. And I think there is that's what that's what happened more than a the voters saying we don't want any more. Yeah, yeah, that's an important point. I should I can't remember exactly what my answer was before, but like the repudiation is coming now. I'm not sure the repudiation was entirely at the ballot, right? At the voting booths. The repudiation, the, the loss was at the voting booths. The repudiation is on the front page of the New York Post this morning, you know, where they have Donald Trump as Humpty Dumpty. Um, it's, it's all over. I mean, like, I try not to watch very much Fox News anymore, and, uh, but sometimes you have to just for the sociology of it. Um, um, and... It is amazing how much of it is you should we like we should bring in Kremlinologists to read the significant <laughs> silences in so much of it. But so like Laura Ingram, who I defecate you negatory, the last in-person conversation I think I ever had with Laura, who I've known for like 30 years, she was she mildly lectured me about how the this is long before Trump how the GOP needs to be wary of all the crazies and be the grown-up party. And I always thought about that over four (laughs) years of watching Laura under Donald Trump. And now, last night, apparently, I saw some extended clips of it. She's talking about how the GOP needs to care about persuasion and, and, and reaching out, and it's about, it's the party of ideas, and yada, 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 and it can't all be about one person. Never says the name Donald Trump, as far as I can tell. Um, so I find that part a little grating, um, but I think it's progress, right? And um, baby steps. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I do think, so I think the repudiation is more coming now in terms of the institutional and political responses to this than it was necessarily at the, at the voting booth. David, do you think abortion was a large factor in this election? I'm going to say yes. I, I, I don't, I keep looking for some information that counters that narrative. I, I, you know, what is the hard data? What is the hard data? And the hard data that we have seems to indicate that abortion actually was quite helpful for Democrats. So one thing is, trigger warning, Sarah, exit polls. I can't believe you're going to do this to me. How dare you, sir? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But it, they say abortion was the second most important issue after inflation. Um, also, we have the matter of the referenda. And the referenda here, I think, are really interesting and in telling that 
uh, every one of them, every one of them so far went in the pro-choice direction. Now, some of them, of course, like ones in California, uh, you know, you had some blues, Vermont, but Michigan's a weird state actually in fairness. So I probably shouldn't lump Vermont in that they're, they're doing their own thing out there. All 12 of them. Michigan is a swing state. Montana is a red state. Tech, uh, Kentucky is a red state at the presidential and, and Senate, you know, and congressional level. Um, these are all places where the pro-life movement had a real, I thought had a real chance. And, and not only did the pro-choice side win, the pro-choice side ran ahead of Democratic candidates in many of those states. And so- That's what I think is so important. Again, you look at Michigan, the referendum uh, had on the pro-choice side had more support than the Democratic governor, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, which isn't a perfect causal arrow. You could still argue that it's correlated in some respects, but in general, to me, that is going to tell me that the turnout for the referendum is what drove turnout for her. Not the other way around. Democrats are already talking about putting as many referenda on the ballot as yeah, possible <laughs> for 2024. And, you know, look, I mean, it's incredibly clear at this point that the pro-life movement has a lot of work to do because it has tied itself so tightly to the GOP. And of course, the Democrats have kind of thrown out everyone who disagrees as well. So, but it is so tightly tied to the GOP that that one of the sad realities is the pro-life movement is going to be maybe about as popular as the GOP or maybe less popular than the GOP writ large. And that's a sobering thing to consider going forward in this post-Roe world. The other evidence that's interesting is the state legislatures that flipped because this is going to be a decision largely made by state legislatures. And that seemed to be, um, that seemed to move some entire bodies, uh, Michigan, Minnesota. Uh, But David, you know, what struck me is that the Kentucky ballot measure Actually, all it said was that Kentucky's constitution does not protect a right to an abortion. It wasn't one of these like six-week heartbeat bills. Like, it wasn't anything like that. It was really just going to let the state legislature then decide what to do about abortion. That's what lost. Yeah. And what I find sort of interesting about that, David, is this is where the GOP m- moves away from the legal conservative position, perhaps. The, the pro-life position is to end abortion. As you've said, David, it's to uh, not necessarily ban it, but to lower slash end abortions Mm -hmm. in the country. The legal conservative position, however, was that this was not an unenumerated constitutional right, and therefore it should be left to the political parties. Uh, I don't mean that in the uh, partisan Republican-Democrat. Political parties, meaning the legislatures, the voters, to make a decision on what they think the policy preferences should be of their local, state, even potentially national uh, Mm -hmm. interests. So in some sense, legal conservatives should be like, yep, we did our job and success. You can decide whatever you want, Kentucky. But that's very different than what the Republican slash pro-life side wants. Well, the pro-life movement was a subset of the anti-Roe movement. So... 
the anti-Roe movement was slightly bigger than the pro-life movement in the, in the sense that because what you're saying that the anti-Roe movement included a lot of folks who um, believe Roe was just wrongly decided, but then if if abortion is on the ballot in their own state, might vote for something like a 15-week regime or a you know a 20-week regime or something like that that is not what the pro-life movement wants, but was incompatible with Roe or incompatible with Casey prior to Dobbs. So I don't think that's a huge number who were anti-Roe, but also somewhat pro-choice, but it's a number. (laughs) It's a number for sure. And I think that that's an important distinction. And I think the reality is that the pro-life movement has to reckon with the fact that in a democratic society, its position, except in states like Tennessee, where I am, Um, Its position is a minority position. And so it has a lot of hearts and minds winning to do. Um, And and that is going to be a difficult challenge in a highly partisan, super acrimonious political environment. Speaking of winning over hearts and minds, I don't know why I'm giggling, but I think of Nate because he's on a little bit of a persuasion campaign in our house that he should be able to have peanut butter cups for all meals at all times. And so he goes around the house singing, (laughs) I want peanut butter cups and like makes up this whole little song about it. Um, And so he is definitely trying to win over hearts and minds. (laughs) 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 It's it's a very funny, he goes from angry, uh, you know, tyrant to full on persuasion to trying to make the best case for it. It's, it's very, it's not that different from any political operation. Sarah, can we swing back to the polling question just for two seconds rather than let your Absolutely. conventional wisdom gel? Although I have to say, I spent in a, in, in a way to sort of be your ally um, and punish um, David for bringing up exit polls. I was trying to figure out how I could seamlessly work in um, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Um, <laughs> but I just I couldn't figure it out. Uh, anyway, um, I agree with you. The polls, like New York Times, Siena kind of got stuff right, right? There was a lot of polls. That, there was a lot of right polling. But the, ha- the practice of factoring in shoddier Republican polls, particularly like Trafalgar, into polling averages, particularly at Real Clear Politics, and um, also the, uh, the, the very real problem of underpolling Republicans in the past, it does feel that in some polls, and even in, I think Real politics, politics actually changed their methodology for the average. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I seem to recall that. It does feel like there was uh, more eagerness in the polling industry and certainly in right-wing media to find polls that people wanted to hear and that those, and certainly Trafalgar was, I mean, like some of Trafalgar's calls towards the end were just nonsense, right? I mean, they were just way off. And that's sort of a magnet next to the compass, right? It blows off all the averages and all of that. So, you know, there's, there's, there's more to the, I, I don't think the era of polling is over yet, but it's, there's this will this event will seem consistent with that story of the decline of polling you're right 10 years from now i think i think so too um okay let's let's play a little 
2024 game because I mean this election's been over for 48 hours uh, 36 <laughs> so it's time to move on to the next one um, I want to present two different scenarios for the Republican primary in 2024 and see which one you think seems more likely sitting here today one is that uh, once again we have 10 plus candidates in the field Donald Trump is one of them the nine plus argue amongst themselves, each making the case that if they can just get into a head-to-head with Donald Trump, they will be able to defeat him. And that's why we need to like cut the legs off of Ted Cruz or whatever else. And they go around Tanya Harding, uh, one another in the hopes of just getting on the ice. And by the way, I think Donald Trump then just very easily keeps on keeping on because none of them, like we learned in 2016, ever get to that head on head. And by the time they kind of even do, it's too late. There's been a a coalescing, if you will, of Republican primary voters. Here's scenario number two, that Ron DeSantis' win in this election was so large and has created such a whirlwind around him that was building over the last two years as well and through COVID. His name ID is high. He's polling high enough that what you're going to have is a media and a voter narrative that is Ron DeSantis versus Donald Trump. And the other eight plus candidates actually will never get any oxygen or any attention because everything is going to be seen through this DeSantis versus Trump lens. And that is at least, I don't know how that turns out in a DeSantis versus Trump. I mean, yes, today you have Fox News, you have others that are seeming to come out pretty hard on Team DeSantis here. (laughs) Uh, But of course, we've seen that before. Cough, cough, January 7th. So Jonah, which of those two (laughs) narratives do you think feels more likely as we sit here today? I don't know. I mean, I truly don't. I, I think I was talking to an NBR producer about this yesterday, and he asked basically this exact same question. And um, I think one way to sort of uh, split the baby on this is to say that a post-Trump GOP future, it's, it's too murky to tell whether it's likely right now, but it is early enough to say it's never been more possible, right? Which then those are two different things. Yeah, um, I, but that's, the, yeah. The, the window of opportunity here is huge for the, for cooler heads to prevail, for same people to prevail, for the sort of the hardcore MAGA own the libs types types to save face by while still endorsing a different candidate. And for the, gosh, we got to just move on from this guy crowd to do it without having to sort of rub salt in everybody's runes or, pur- or purge people from the movement. This is, this is a real opportunity here. Whether it will be seized upon, I don't really have a great answer. David? Huh, I'm, I'm where Jonah is, but maybe a little more pessimistic. Um, <laughs> nice. Do you need me to run through the other candidates? Because there's so many. That could take up a good five minutes of our time here. Asa Hutchison, the Arkansas governor's uh, a dark horse that I think has a high likelihood of hopping in. You've got the Larry Hogan's and Chris Christie's. Is Ted Cruz. What about Tim Scott? Sununu. Sununu. Uh, so uh, Greg Abbott. So many names. I mean, so a couple of things. One is I'm not underestimating the ability of Donald Trump to suck all the oxygen out of the room really quickly 
as soon as he announces, whenever that is, you know, his allegedly insiders are telling him to please delay until after the Georgia runoff. Who knows if he will? Oh, we're going to get to that. (laughs) So (laughs) he has an enormous ability to suck all the oxygen out of the room. Um, He will go after DeSantis, Hammer and Tongs. But, you know, DeSantis has kind of got an interesting approach to that, which is ignoring him, just not really talking about him and just running Florida, (laughs) which has worked for him pretty well so far. I mean, he's now head and shoulders above any other Republican. Uh, You know, if you're if you're once you once you move beyond Donald Trump, he's head and shoulders above any other Republican. But the fact of the matter is Trump's vulnerability will I the more I think about it and we talked about it yesterday, I think a lot of folks think DeSantis is overhyped. Um, that he kind of has a bit of a boomlet because he was a target of the media during COVID, um, very shrewdly captured a, num- uh, captured a number of culture war issues. Um, but there are folks that believe he's just not that compelling a figure when you actually put him on a stage next to other folks, that he kind of has a very sour demeanor that he's just not going to be as ready for prime time as people think when he's actually tested by a, a competitive campaign compared to going on a Fox News hit where he's going to be just, you know, where he's lavished with praise and he's allowed to say his piece. So there are folks who think that he's just not up to a primary campaign against better competition. I don't know. I don't know. I think he's got a lot of momentum right now, but. I'm I'm not completely sold that a uh, other people will be deterred from him uh, from taking him on, and b that when other people take him on, that he'll clearly prevail. I will say to a person when you talk about the people who think Ron DeSantis is overhyped, uh, it's like everyone who works in politics in D.C., every Republican governor, <laughs> basically the people who like have interacted and worked with Ron DeSantis over the years, think he's overhyped. Now, that could be some professional jealousy. A lot of these governors want to run themselves. And when you talk about Florida politics, we might have three Floridians running, Donald Trump, uh, Ron DeSantis, and Rick Scott. So, and I mean, Marco Rubio, probably not, but who knows? So there's a lot of incentive to say he's overhyped as well, but certainly in the whispery closed door places, you hear that often. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with that, but I also think that there is truth because I've talked to people who do not really have skin in the game who've been in the room with him quite a bit and just say he doesn't own a room, right? And Don Trump walks in the room, he schmoozes everybody, he owns the room. Bill Clinton owned a room. He's kind of antisocial. He's kind of socially Barack awkward. Barack Obama didn't, though. Barack Obama was fabulous at rallies, but yeah. he wasn't a room-owning guy. I'm not, I'm not saying it's like, that is the one key, this with this one key trick, you go in the presidency. I'm just saying that like, there's a reason to be, you know, skeptical about it. Um, And, uh, but David's point about like, it's going to be DeSantis or nobody, or like the DeSantis is the key to it. I personally have no problem whatsoever sacrificing the political careers and lives of as many of these politicians as possible just to get Donald Trump out of American politics. Completely agree. So if it's, if Mike Pence wants to stripe strap on the vest and shout Alu Akbar and go hug Donald (laughs) Trump on a stage, um, (laughs) metaphorically speaking, 
Um, <laughs> fine by me, you know, and same thing with DeSantis, same thing with any of these people, you know, like the one guy left amongst the rubble on the stage when the smold and the burning curtain and all that, who can shake off, you know, the, the viscera of his other opponents and dust himself off can claim the prize. I don't care who it is. If, if, if that's Scott Abbott or Rick Scott or whatever, you know, fine. <laughs> I, I don't care. Scott Abbott, they've now just glued themselves together. I do think there's, so, you know, I don't believe in lanes. I think the lane theory of presidential politics is like dead and stupid and always was. But there's like some archetypes that I think are emerging for 2024. And so you have Mike Pence, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican governor of Virginia who won in 2021 by uh, ignoring Trump, holding him at arm's length. He didn't do any rallies for him, but he also wasn't denouncing Trump. He never was negative towards Trump. Um, Ron DeSantis, and I might maybe even throw Ted Cruz into that same archetype of embracing Trumpism without embracing Trump necessarily. Do you think that voters have more or less of an appetite for any of these? I mean, to your point about like, maybe Ron DeSantis doesn't own a room. Maybe he's overhyped. Does that make Glenn Youngkin or Mike Pence more attractive as a candidate to you? To me? I don't know. Whoever. David? Some guy? Yeah, you know, I'm at the point where I would like to see a small cluster of contenders. I do not want to see a large gaggle. Oh, you're not going to get that. <laughs> I know. We can uh, narrow Sarah, them down. I will narrow them down for you, but that's that's not going to I, Sarah, I, I am no... I am not naive. I know that I do not get what I want, but I'm just stating what I want. Your I would like to, see, to the universe. Okay, yes, cool. Yes, to the universe. I'm saying a small gaggle of contenders that narrows. I would like quickly. a gaggle of vultures, crows, and some miniature donkeys. Just if we're saying things that we want, it's almost Christmas. And here's one thing that I will not get that I want um, from everything that I've heard. Brian Kemp as a presidential contender. From what I've heard, he is not interested. But this is somebody who is a who has his own story, his own DeSantis-like story, without a lot of sort of the DeSantis baggage that carry that carries along that that comes with him. And I think the the one thing though I think that's going to be interesting to see. And again, this may actually end up helping DeSantis a great deal because remember a lot of his momentum has been generated by media opposition the way the GOP base works right now, whoever the media circles around, they're going to defend. And then when they defend it, the media circles around that attacks even more, you know, um, brings more scrutiny. Um, Get ready for the wave. And it already started a little bit, but get ready for the wave of commentary that says DeSantis is just as bad as Trump or DeSantis is worse than Trump. I think that already started. It started a little bit. Some of that. I've definitely seen that. Or worse. I've seen a lot of DeSantis is worse than Trump because he's Trump, but competent and smarter. Right. And yeah, which is like saying it's a vest, it but with sleeves. Right. right? It's I just totally not a agree. thing. The fact that DeSantis is, quote unquote, more competent and smarter also is because he has a different set of ambitions than Donald Trump. And those different ambitions will create completely different results if he's president, in my opinion, yeah. than a second Donald Trump term. I am set aside 
policy preferences. David, you and I have talked about some of our civil liberty concerns with some of these new Republicans, for instance. But in terms of an underlying threat to the republic as we know it, no, no, Ron DeSantis doesn't concern me at all. Yeah. Not remotely like that. That's that argument that he's a threat to the Republic or a threat to democracy. No, no, stop it. If he is, then Gavin Newsom is because they have the exact same flaw in my view. I mean, Newsom has more flaws in that he's much more progressive overall. But if I was going to say the thing that I like the least about DeSantis and the thing I like the least about Gavin Newsom is exactly the same thing, which is they're not big fans of the First Amendment. And you know, I think they both have that problem. And every single time the Democrats say, oh, look at the Stop Woke Act. He's an absolute menace. I will say, um, what about California trying to force uh, pro-life pregnancy centers to advertise for free and low, no-cost abortions? How about California trying to force churches to cover abortions? How, I mean, you just can go on uh, down the line with California Time and time and time again, you have two major contenders who are not civil libertarians here between DeSantis and Gavin Newsom. I don't like that. It doesn't make them a threat to the republic. (laughs) It doesn't. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. There's a lot of actual results that we don't know, which is its own whole conversation about, as many people have pointed out, The millions upon millions, I think, what, Florida has 21 million voters or something, and they had results immediately, and Arizona has 7 million, and, like, we still don't know. Nevada, even fewer. Uh, Oregon, all these races that we just don't have results yet, 36 hours later, and nor does it seem like we're that close to having the results, frankly. Um, Set aside how stupid that is. not frustrating, actually, because it's, we know it's doable, because Florida does it, and they do it with more people. Um, so it's just- and Jeb Bush is responsible for it, right? I mean, this is yes. the point Charlie Cook made, is that after the Florida recount stuff, Jeb Bush was like, we're going to have the best voting count, vote counting system in America, and they do. And what is it they say in that movie, The Edge? What one man can do, another can do? Like, <laughs> if Florida can do it, that means it's doable, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And again, like, they have more people, they have- both rural and dense area. There's just no excuse for why alligators. other states aren't doing this. They have they have lots of alligators. I mean, and they did it by overcoming the impediment of having Florida man as overrepresented 
in their population. So that's right. And they can I mean, still some do of it. the Arizona stuff in Maricopa County was outrageous to me that they didn't test their printers ahead of time to ensure that the ink was dark enough to run through their scanning machines. You're joking me, right? Um, and Nevada doesn't even have that excuse. They're just being slow. But we saw that before. Anyway, one thing we do know for sure is that Georgia's going to a runoff. And that gives us about four weeks to be miserable. But I'm sort of from just a strategic standpoint, there's three players here whose strategies I'm very interested in. Herschel Walker's campaign and strategically mm-hmm. how you message this over the next month. Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and what they're like, go all in, like the hokey pokey that they're about to do. Uh, and then, of course, the Democrats, nationally, the Warnock campaign, I'm going to put those all in one bucket, um, and how you do it again, because their strategy in 2020 was, there were some new parts of it. Some parts were particularly brilliant, I thought. They've now got Stacey Abrams at their disposal, who I understand she lost her race. But the reason why Georgia is a competitive state is because of Stacey Abrams and the energy, the machine, the money she brought to that state. So Ralph Warnock being a senator at all is because of Stacey Abrams. And now she's freed up to do something. So curious, uh, let's, just because we were just talking about it, let's start with the hokey pokey dance. DeSantis and Trump, what will their role be? What should their role be in the next month when it comes to the Georgia runoff race, Jonah? First, just because I think it's interesting, maybe you guys knew this, I learned this on NPR this morning. The whole reason why Georgia has a runoff system is it was a way to ensure that there would be a final race where a white candidate could win. It would winnow out black candidates. And I think there's some great historical irony that this is a race between two black candidates and all because and all because of Stacey Abrams and whatnot. So, you know, racial progress, hooray. Um, I'll just make a quick plug, though, for having a uh, 50% plus one election system because it does prevent plurality-based candidates from winning. And so you do need to get over 50%. Nobody wants to go to a runoff, and that probably incentivizes some better behavior, though, but see Georgia. So who knows? Yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot to be, I mean, France does it with their presidential stuff. And like, I'm, more sympathetic to it than I otherwise might be, given that it's French. Um, the Libertarian, interestingly, <laughs> got 2%. That 2% right. would have made all the difference and tells you um, not only the drop-off between Kemp and Walker, which I think ends up being about five points. Um, again, we'll, we'll see at the very end how much it is. So five percentage of voters voted for Kemp and either voted for Warnock or did not vote in the Senate race. And then 2% voted for the Libertarian, and there was a Green Party candidate in the race, So that, and they got less than 1%. So the 2% Libertarians were almost certainly Walker protest votes. So bad news for the Walker team that 7% of your voters were like, no, anything but this. Whether it's the right. Democrat not voting or the Libertarian, just not this. Right. Which is good. It means candidates do still matter. I like that. So to answer the question, um, I think you also just have to do the level setting thing of it really depends what the count in the other Senate races is, right? If uh, if it really does all come down to Georgia again, uh, 
the living will envy the dead. But almost, um, I mean, again, we don't know right now, but the the path is because Pennsylvania flipped, Republicans now need two of the remaining states, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Nevada looks good. Arizona doesn't. The right. likeliest scenario right now is that it absolutely, Georgia will be the deciding one. The only real alternative is uh, maybe they lose Nevada and Arizona, in which case Georgia doesn't matter. The idea that they're going to win both Nevada and Arizona, maybe, but unlikely. So certainly right now, the odds on, right. we're all heading to Georgia. So, I mean, the the in a, in a sane world, the good news for Donald Trump is that he could learn from his past mistakes <laughs> and not do the same thing he did two years ago, right? Oh, that's so adorable. Oh, my Isn't God. That, Isn't that cute? <laughs> yeah. um, but odds that he will do that are unlikely. The The interesting thing to me is like, you know, it, it doesn't get nearly enough attention that Brian Kemp and, and Ra- Brad Raffensperger were probably second only to Liz Cheney mm-hmm. on Donald Trump's hate list. And yep. they both got reelected. And one of the things I think that says is that Georgia Republicans in particular have been inoculated to the crazier stop the steal stuff from Trump, right? Because, you know, and, um, and that means his ability to damage the runoff is more limited than it might be in almost any other state. Still, in a 50-50 race, uh, a little damage goes a long way. I mean, um, and so uh, I think I think DeSantis's role is pretty easy. He goes around campaigning for Herschel Walker and says responsible things and some red meat to the base and 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 all that. But for Trump, whose agenda is always about his own ego, the question is how much restraint can he show? Um, and you're already hearing voices saying he really, really needs to wait to he needs to postpone this announcement, this November 15th announcement till after the Georgia runoff. I kind of doubt that he's going to do that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, like, I, it's as you said with your bless your heart response earlier, you know, like. We can come up with what the right strategy is for Donald Trump, but like. <laughs> We can also come out with, with what the best chess moves for a spider monkey are. It's just, it's, just, it's, just, it's all lip flapping. So David, if Donald Trump announces uh, he has all the downside and none of the upside, if Herschel Walker right. wins, no one's going to say it's because Donald Trump announced for president. But Except if he Donald loses, Trump. but even I, like that will be such a difficult case to make because why? Why would that help Herschel Walker? There's an argument for why it would hurt him. But in terms of helping him, so you took away attention and money, and that's what got him over the finish line? That's a weird argument. Um, for Ron DeSantis, he surely has to be the most sought-after surrogate in the country right now. And yet, I don't know that it's particularly in Ron DeSantis's interest to go all in on Florida, I mean, on Georgia right now. Um, there's some risk. There's a lot of risk. He either can't pull Herschel Walker over the finish line, or again, Herschel Walker wins and I'm just not sure that anyone's like, Ron DeSantis did it. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I think every everyone who wants to run for president in 2024 is going to have to bop down there at this point. And whether Donald Trump announces, I think will color, I do, I think it'll color the whole thing in terms of how it's covered, in terms of how voters think about it, and in terms of how they think about control of the Senate, because we're done with policy arguments at this point. There's no more 
pro-life, pro-choice, inflation, like all of those things that were so important 36 hours ago. This will be, do you want them to control the Senate or us to control the Senate? A case for divided government, checking Biden, a case for confirming judges, all of those things. Um, And if Donald Trump's in the presidential race, it'll be, it'll almost feel as if he's already president. And so you don't want to give him the Senate, quote unquote. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) From the Republican standpoint, there's just no case for Donald Trump announcing. Like if you if you have any sort of institutional GOP concern, there's just no case for it. None, zero. And of course, that doesn't matter to Donald Trump at all. I mean, this is a guy who celebrated the loss of a Republican Senate candidate in Colorado. Immediately. That was his first response to the election night was like, like, like I got to keep my powder dry. Oh, wait, <laughs> this guy lost. Yay. Yeah, it was make America great again. I'm so glad this Republican lost. It was weird for someone who <laughs> is in theory the leader of the Republican Party. Yeah. So I, I, this all boils down to his own perception of his own self-interest, even maybe up to two hours in advance of the rally. The the only thing that I would wonder about is, is, is there so much momentum in place now that he, he can't back away, that he, he perceives that he just can't back away from it? Because I doubt he would then say on November 15th in front of everyone at Mar-a-Lago, I'm back on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. He made that announcement the night before the election because he was so concerned that there was going to be this huge red wave and he wanted to make sure that he was going to get credit for quasi-announcing and then when the red wave doesn't come, now he's locked himself in to some announcement in just a few days. Whew. All right. Last few thoughts on the election. Um, what do the parties learn from this? In particular, because we haven't talked about them much, the Democratic Party. What does the Biden administration take away from this? Um, what are the Democrats in Congress say is the narrative. And I'm thinking specifically in the run-up to the election, Third Way, which is a centrist Democratic group, puts out this pre-mortem that's like, Democrats are going to lose because voters do not believe the Democrats share their values, don't think they're patriots, don't think they value hard work. They're instead off on these progressive tangents that people don't care about. Democrats wildly exceeded expectations. And I don't mean the polling here. I mean, historical trends for a president with a 40% approval rating uh, for his first midterm in office. Again, you look at uh, the only other time in our lifetime that that's happened. And George W. Bush had a 63% approval rating when he picked up eight seats. Democrats should be saying like, this is, in my view, they they have evidence to say this is a mere mandate. Jonah? (laughs) Yeah, so um, we talked about this a little bit on the Dispatch Live, which you missed, um, for shame. That was said Uh, with a little bit of... (laughs) No, you were missed, you know, so Uh it's okay. That felt felt a little like it had a little curve on that ball. Maybe a little. (laughs) Um, So, uh, no, uh, and it was funny, like I was uh, hosting Mediocrely and... For the first half of it, we were talking about what are the recriminations and the lessons that the Democrats are going to learn from all of this. And then the results actually started to really, you know, take shape. And we're like, oh, so they're going to be recriminations and lessons for the Republicans. That's interesting. Um, (laughs) Didn't see that coming. And 
So I think this is, this is one of the downsides of having a binary, uh, a two-party system is that basically only one side gets an opportunity to learn a lesson um, <laughs> at a time. And um, I think the Democrats are making it, to, you know, look, I mean, this is my longstanding gripe for, for, for a long time now, which is that the part of the problem in our country is that parties for all sorts of complicated or simple reasons um, overinterpret their victories and at the same time act as if the power that they get has a very brief shelf life on it. So they have to do everything they can when they can for fear of losing power again. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and the fact that Biden, when asked whether he was going to change any of his policies, he says he wasn't going to change a damn thing, right? He says, just nothing. I wouldn't change anything, right? It's not a great sign. Um, and, I think that this is one of the things that a lot of people don't appreciate is that like victory is always not in the long-term interests of a party. I understand why you got to like push for victory, but Republicans were kind of lucky they lost in 2020, <laughs> given that inflation was coming and all these problems were coming um, and let them be outsiders. Uh, the fact that Democrats did this well in the midterms makes it much harder to get rid of Biden. Um, even though the argument for getting rid of Biden is in part just because he's, Friggin' old. And he's his birthday's in just a couple weeks, November 20th. He will turn 80 years old. And because of the nature of quantum temporal physics, he's only going to get older. (laughs) Right. And um, and and if that's the fact, like this is it's sort of like inflation, right? You know how everyone says, like, you can't hide like, you know, they had Joy Reid saying. People are only talking about inflation because Republicans have taught them the word and blah blah. (laughs) It's like the most ridiculous stuff. (laughs) Like uh People know inflation because they see it in gas prices and food prices every single day. People see in Biden that he's, it's not so much an age thing. It's like a specific thing. It's like, because there's some people who are old who don't show it. Bernie Sanders doesn't really show his age, but they see in Biden that he's fading. And um, that's just going to make him a very weak candidate in 2024. I also, just to get it out there, I think this argument that because he beat Trump once, he can beat him again is a dumb, dumb argument because mm-hmm. while I do think Trump will be a very bad candidate, right? And so it's possible that Biden can beat him. The reason Biden beated him was that he campaigned on this return to normalcy vibe. He campaigned on this idea that he was going to be bipartisan. After four years of not being bipartisan and not returning normalcy, he can't run the same play and he can't run stay the course, right? Don't change horses in midstream and all that kind of thing. And so it's just a new race all over again. So I think the Democratic and having Party- unified control of Congress. I mean, you talked about how it helped Republicans in 2020 to lose the Senate. Arguably, if Republicans don't control the Senate in 2023, it makes their chances in 2024 a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, I was talking to a very prominent Democratic consultant yesterday, um, and he was saying, you know, one of the benefits of gridlock is, is that now Biden doesn't have to live, um, you know, he can exceed the length of the leash that AOC held over Biden. So maybe we'll see something different. But um, I think the Democratic Party needs to learn a lot of lessons because both parties suck. And that's my position. David? I mean, I, I got, a, I think, an insightful text from a friend um, late last or late Tuesday night and said, this was a good night for the right. It just doesn't know it yet. And Ooh, that does. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And, and, the, and the point was this moved the right away from Trumpism and it kept the left moving away from Biden. <laughs> and so 
if if the Republicans take the lesson that they should take from this, then the chances that you have a younger, better Republican taking on an incumbent Joe Biden in a post-Trump environment just increased. Now, there's a giant if there. There's the giant if is, do the Republicans take the lesson that they should take from this? Um, not super optimistic about that, but I will say <laughs> that the, the chances increased, the chances increased, but that's where I am on it. I think um, this was a better night for the right than the right realizes because of that. And then the other thing is, let's, uh, I know the Democrats rightfully, and just to, to put this in context of, you know, we we're talking about history, the last time a, a president went into the midterms with a 44% approval rating was Bill Clinton in 1994, and the Democrats lost 54 seats, okay? So that's the kind of perspective we're talking about. But um, the Democrats rightfully are exuberant right now, but they had some swings and misses too. I mean, you know, they got to be kicking themselves about Wisconsin and Ron Johnson. Yep. Johnson was vulnerable, and Way they more nominated. vulnerable than they thought. And it's because Johnson had been left for dead by the Republicans so many times and roared back. This time it was not a roar. It was a meow. Yes. Lost by one point running a far left dude. Like how far left? This is a guy who praised Iranian government Twitter accounts for their support of Black Lives Matter. Like, are you kidding me? Uh, so there was, there was some stuff that they left on the table as well. But, you know, in the flush of sort of seeming victory or more likely bullet dodged, they're not going to take that lesson. And they're, they're more likely to double down on Biden. And over the long term, that might be better for Republicans if they can learn the lessons they need to learn. All right. Well, we're going to end with a joke or is it a metaphor? For some reason, I just think dispatch listeners will enjoy this one. Uh, snake walks into the forest, slithers into the forest. Come out, little critters. Don't be afraid. I'm not poisonous. Actually, says the mouse as he leaves his little hidey hole. You mean venomous. Poisonous refers to something that unloads toxins when eaten. Works every time, says the snake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, it's nice to see you uh, <laughs> transcending gender binaries and, and age restrictions and going straight into dad jokes. Um, <laughs> <so. laughs> and with that, we will see you again next week. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll maybe even know a little bit more about the vote in some of these states or not. A week later, why should we expect Arizona to have finished counting by then? <laughs> Thanks for joining us. And again, it helps other people find this podcast if you rate us because the higher the rating, the higher your algorithmic yada yada magic voodoo is. Um, and so give us a rating or become a member of the dispatch and hop in the most fun and lovely and kind and inquisitive comment section. I expect lots of comments about snakes and mice and poison and venom. <laughs> See you later. Bye.